Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 74 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. We are back once again. April is slowly winding down, but we have another great set of content to talk about with you. My name is Eric Nance, and I am joined, as always, by my excellent co-host who's been doing a lot of multitasking today in more ways than one, Michael Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today? <laughs> it sounds like we both have. I'm doing great today, Eric. How are you? Good, good. I um, I was referencing that awesome uh, tweet you just made earlier a few hours ago doing a little uh, daddy duty while listening to something. I, I, I know how that feels, my friend. Yep, yep. Fortunately, yeah, it all works out. I just got to watch along with the Open Data Science Conference that's going on right now in Boston and virtually, and I had uh, my daughter taking a nap uh, on my shoulder this morning. So you don't get much. Good. We don't get much better than that. No, you're exactly right. So it may go downhill for me when you talk to me, but you'll you'll obviously have hopefully have fun nonetheless. But <laughs> well, she's she's not mobile yet, unlike yours. So <laughs> yeah, you got a little time till then. You got a little time. Yep, yep. So yeah, we're here to talk about week sixteen of our issue. It has been curated by the awesome Tony El Habar, who of course has been a awesome contestant on the Slice program. Always love seeing his issues, and as always, we have great help from our Art Weekly team members and contributors around the world. So let's dive right into it. Our first topic or highlight today is the evolution of a very important ecosystem within R. And it demonstrates a few things with the world of open source that I think are great things to discuss here. So as we think about open source in general, there's always one kind of constant, in my opinion, that always remains, is that things are changing now. These changes are hopefully always for the better, maybe the better good of a project or a system, but sometimes there are inevitable changes that might have some short-term difficulties, maybe breaking compatibility or key libraries reaching end of their life cycle, myriad of other reasons. Well, within the R world, um, the winds of change are blowing in the spatial analysis ecosystem. And our first highlight illustrates how being proactive on multiple levels can greatly prepare for these situations. And so we're specifically talking about a blog post by Edzer Pebesma, easy for me to say, uh, professor at the Institute for Geoinformatics at the University of Minster, and Roger Biven, who is a retired professor in economics at the Norwegian School of Economics and also a member of the R Foundation who have talked about a very important development in some of the packages that Roger maintains in the R spatial suite, RGDAO, RGEOS, and MAP tools. Well, each of these are approaching retirement. And this is for a couple reasons. Roger himself is retiring. Congrats to him. I'm certainly he's at a, from what I could read, a very lengthy and, and, and fulfilling career as a professor. He deserves to enjoy his retirement, I would imagine. And the, there have been additional new packages in the R spatial ecosystem, such as SF, STARS, and Terra, that are having similar linkages to the C libraries that the previous packages that I mentioned from Roger have also linked to. These are, um, and these are very important because these are also maintained in open source on their own life cycle with a lot of changes from time to time. And it's obviously takes a lot of work to make sure that any wrapper package that either Roger or anyone else creates 
in a community is in line with whatever changes are happening upstream in these um, in these other libraries. So what's very fascinating here is that this effort to prepare users for the retirement of these aforementioned packages is actually an effort that's being funded as an R consortium proposal. And so they are Edzer and Roger are actually being able to leverage this excellent service or opportunity from the R consortium to really do this in a very effective manner by telling users that there is work underway to make sure that all the relevant functions from the aforementioned packages are being retired, that there is an easy path forward for users to leverage the newer packages that have a more modern look at some of these linkages to the C libraries and other enhancements, that it's easy for them to get up and running, that they are contacting all the maintainers of packages that depend on Roger's um, initial set that's going to be retired, and making sure that they are opening the doors for collaboration for key stakeholders or key users in this space so that they're aware of these migrations and then they can work with them directly um, to collaborate on making this a smooth process. And so I think it's a great testament to how being upfront and transparent and showing initiative and not simply pulling the plug on these packages one day and then users being kind of left in the dark a little bit, figuring out where do I go next? This is a great testament to how a, a project team in open source can prepare for the future and make sure that the users are on board with that and that there is very transparent, very clear next steps of action to prepare for using say a new set of functionality or at least updating their existing analyses like this. So as someone who's not involved in spatial statistics in my day job, I always just see what excellent and smart people do online. I think it's really great to see this initiative by a Roger and Edzer. Yeah, well, congrats to Roger and his retirement. I'm not a big GIS user or developer, but the GIS stuff I have done, I feel like I almost always see RGDEL in the mix as a big dependency backbone package um, to whatever I'm doing. I know that this is a big deal in the GIS R community, which is a huge community that, in my opinion, uses a pretty niche set of skills, which is really cool. Um, at Catchbrook, we actually have someone on staff who specifically specializes in GIS data science. Um, so I'll be the first to admit it's an area I don't have ex the experience or the, or the bandwidth to cover. Um, you know, we can't we can't do everything, but it's such a, such a cool field that I'm fascinated by. And, and I thought Ezra and Roger did a great job in the blog post discussing the who, what, where, when, and why these packages are getting retired. Um, package maintenance and, and retirement is, is a really interesting topic to me in general. I have to imagine that it's difficult for a developer to retire a package that they put years of time and effort into maintaining, even if they did you know, have a hand in developing a more modern package that supersedes it. Right. A lot of open source work we know goes pretty unthanked. Uh, so I think it's worth remembering to thank a developer today, whether that be Roger or Edzer or, or any other developer whose R package uh, you like and you enjoy using on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I think we can't do that enough. So I applaud the hard work that the authors are doing to ensure that the functionality we got in RGDAL, RGOS, and Map Tools is migrated to one of the more modern packages mentioned that are actively being maintained. 
And like you mentioned, I think it's incredible. Um, it's inspiring in a lot of ways that they're putting together this work group and steering committee consisting of all the stakeholders most affected by these changes to ensure that the migration is executed smoothly and fairly. I mean, you know, people complain sometimes about, you know, validating our or validating our packages and that oh, anybody yes. can do anything, you know, with, with open source compared to some of those other three letter closed source languages. But I think this just goes to show how strong um, the community is and how seriously we take the work that we do in R specifically. So it looks like we can expect some of this functionality uh, to, that's getting migrated to end up in a set of what they're calling proxy packages, which sounds like will be sort of helper packages that encompass the functions that they aren't able to directly transfer to one of the newer maintained packages like SF, um, which seems definitely more or less the new leader among the geospatial ecosystem in R. So definitely a blog worth checking out if you're one of those many folks who are awesome GIS R developers. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And we do have, yeah, excellent links available. Um, some that we've actually talked about on the podcast before um, to really upscale your knowledge in this space and how to leverage these, this, this newer wave of packages that we referenced earlier to really get your, get your maps looking nice and, and, and polished and stuff that maybe in the future I'll be able to do. But uh, yeah, sometimes we can't do everything in, in life, <laughs> but um, yeah, we'll move on to our, our next highlight here. And I'll be the first to admit that I, if you've ever seen some of my uh, live coding adventures, you'll see that I rarely write working code on the first try. And I see my fair share of error messages and warnings. Now, some of them are very helpful and they get me quickly to what I need to correct the issue. And then there are others that make me scratch my head a little bit especially if they're coming from like three or four calls deep into some internal library that us as our users may not really understand very well. And I'm trying to troubleshoot some cryptic like grid error on our HPC system or things like Objective that. Objective type closure is not susceptible. Bingo. There's your bingo <laughs> card entry, folks. Yep. I've had way too many of those as well. And now while there isn't a whole lot you can do as an end user, using someone else's package or functions to improve that situation, except of course offer to collaborate with them potentially. But if you're developing your own package or set of functions, there is some easy steps you can take to guide your users to a more productive debugging experience. If they go off the beaten path, like I've done many times while they use your uh, functions or package. And that's where Nick Crane, who is, our, is an R developer at Ursa Computing, supporting the highly acclaimed Arrow project, but she's written a really nice, approachable and elegant blog post about how you can link different errors messages together in a succinct way so that you as the end user can really understand where you need to fix it and why that issue might be happening. So she already won me over when I first like read the first few sentences of the post because it's about cats and I'm a cat person, yay. Um, but, <laughs> Going further than that, um, she writes a simple function to import a set of records from a CSV file, and she all, she puts in a validation check on one of the columns being over an extreme value. So on its own, that works terrific. She's leveraging the rlang package to print a clean error message that's tailored to the function. But of course, in the real world, we deal with human ender data, more things can go wrong. 
the other part of her post talks about maybe somebody supplying a wrong file format for the data. And a package like Read R will do its best to import it to what it thinks it'll be, like a CSV. But you might get a warning that some kind of haywire happened, and you might get some nonsensical results at the end that would, are nothing like what the data file actually had. So one approach that she takes first is to write a custom handler function to translate that warning into an actual error message so that that return object is never actually produced that's nonsensical. And with some helper text along the way to lead the user to say, well, maybe you chose the wrong file type, something like that. Well, if you just link these together and you see the messages in the console, it's a little misleading because the user is going to think that specific error came from that convenient handling function, but that's not what you intend. You intend that error to be displayed from whatever import function that's kind of wrapping all that. And so now the solution that she proposes is a technique that I really need to utilize more often. The idea of changing the calling environment of your function where that error occurs to go up a few levels in the stack to be relevant to what the user actually called. So what I'm saying here, I'm trying to describe it verbally, it's a little complicated, but for the main import function, the user should see any errors in that particular step, not where Nick is trying to do the right thing by making these custom handlers for these oddball situations that can occur. Now, I, as I look at this and I think of the packages I build internally at the day job, I have not used this technique nearly enough. The combination of try-catch, custom handlers, and pretty more informative error messages. So what's nice about Nick's post is I have a nice, you know, gentle starting point to start maybe revising some of my existing tooling, or at least starting on a better foot for the ones that are new to put this kind of user experience of diagnosing problems ahead in high priority to make it a much smoother experience for the users of the tools I create. So kudos to Nick as always, her blog posts are both entertaining and very, very enlightening. So what did you think about Nick's uh, adventures here, Mike? Sure. So I'll be the first to admit that I'm guilty of not putting enough try-catch statements inside of the R functions I write. And I will say something a little heretical here, but I actually find writing like try-catch error handling in Python a little cleaner than in R. I, and I'm going to say this because I dunked on one programming language in the first highlight, so I have to say something nice about another programming language now. <laughs> but... The, uh, the reason I like the error handling in Python, it, it, it's a little bit more concise and I do most of my web scraping in Python and those types of fun functions often call for a lot of error handling because I don't want the entire job to fail just because I couldn't find one element on a web page. But anyways, I think it's no secret that R historically has done a much better job of providing clear and informative error and warning messages to users than pretty much any other programming language. Um, However, I think I do think Python saw this recently, maybe with version three and beyond, and has started trying to improve this in some of the more recent versions. But my point is that I think a lot of the adoption of R has been driven by this culture of writing defensive software with clear, informative error messages. And in this blog, Nick takes us under the hood, so to speak, about how to improve your error messages with some really helpful tricks that you can add to your try-catch statements and functional programming workflows. 
Uh, she points out she uses the Rlang package, which I'm a huge fan of, and you should be too if you're writing R packages and you care about defensive programming. And most notable to me was her use of the Rlang caller environment, caller underscore env function, to ensure that you're referencing the function that the user actually cares about. So we know that a lot of R packages contain helper functions that we never really see because they aren't exported. And I can't tell you how many times I've ran into an error message that tells me there's an issue with a function that I wasn't even calling in my script because the error was tripped by one of these helper functions that, that I don't know about. It's not exported by that package. And it's really confusing to me as the user how I should go about troubleshooting this error because I can't look up the arguments unless I dive into the source code for this helper function. So I, I think Nick makes a good argument for why it's worthwhile to your users specifically of your packages and of the data science products that you're, you're creating to invest the time into providing them with the most informative error messages possible that decrease the amount of time that they have to spend debugging their code because their intuition about how your function works didn't line up with your expectations about how they would use it. So very, very well done blog post. Uh, Glad to see that somebody is as brilliant as Nick is on the Ursa Labs and in Arrow Project. Really, really cool. Yeah, and it sounds like she had uh, quite a few adventures uh, with with the Arrow Project and trying to make more informative messages that do go into these other libraries that that wraps. And I don't envy that task for anything, but at least in the context of R itself, yeah, we have a you know, nice tooling available to control this experience a bit. And I also... You know, as I've been doing a lot more Shiny lately, I try to do the same thing in my Shiny apps too, of not just letting that app like have that infamous gray tint of like the app has failed, but show them why it failed. Easier said than done, but user experience across the board is a is a major thing to consider here. And as as Mike knows, we like to have a little continuity in the podcast. And our last highlight brings us down a rabbit hole that was teased a little bit a couple episodes ago. Back in episode 72, which we've linked in the show notes here, we learned about a great new R package called Chronicler, authored by Bruno Rodriguez. Well, to briefly recap what I'm referring to, that Chronicler package allows you to decorate existing R functions with, say, helpful logging messages or other enhancements for error handling without you as the user having to actually change the function code itself that you want to make more um, decorated, if you will. Now, taking a step back to motivate kind of where this highlight comes in, we often find ourselves in two pretty common situations when we develop our code, say to perform data analysis or some other task. We start with specific code to the problem at hand, maybe like for exploring data, generating summaries and the like. And that's an example of imperative programming. You are literally being specific to the data you're analyzing, what you want to do with it, and everything. And now Bruno in his post that we're highlighting here, he has an example set of data processing steps that only leverages basic conditional processing, loops, and a handful of functions from base R to replicate like summarizing by group. Now, while it's very clear in the sense of what the program itself is doing from R itself, that may not be as reusable for new projects later on. You're going to have to change variables. You may have to update loops and everything. So most would agree that this is a time if you have to reuse something, it's time for a function. 
That way you can have parameters for the dynamic elements, but keep a lot of that static code that's doing the heavy lifting. When you use functions like this, that's an example of declarative programming, like the aggregate function in base R or summarize in dplyr. It's pretty easy to understand the intent of it. And like I said, you can tweak parameters, reuse code that's doing the heavy lifting, but sometimes functions on their own don't solve all the problems if you have some other you know, situations that maybe you're trying to adhere to, such as maybe keeping track of how long a process is taking. I deal with this a lot of time in my HPC work, or maybe some other side effect operation, like say logging. Now, what I've done in the past is to add like optional parameters in my function and add some conditional logic to say, if I want to see more messages, print all this junk out, or if I want to keep timing the set, like a start time and an end time, but that's me changing the function code. That's a lot of overhead for me as a developer to maintain that in the future. Bruno introduces in the rest of the post, some approaches that he takes that maintains two key principles, not having to change that existing function and being able to compose these together in say a chain of operations. The road to this step is a bit confusing and I'm still kind of wrapping my head around it, but he's able to show that you can utilize a technique in R that Hadley Wickham mentions called function factories, which sound kind of like what they're described as, it's functions to create other functions, but you're taking the default inputs for that particular function you kind of want to create a new version of, and you're adding a little enhancements in it, such as processing, keeping track of processing time, maybe some other side effect. But then as an end user, you yourself don't have to change those source functions. And so these two features are in essence, what kind of at the end of the post, Bruno defines as monads. Still something that seems quite mysterious to me, yet this, this post here is the closest I'll ever get to probably grasping at least maybe half of, of what the concept is. Um, but the example code really puts it, puts it home, at least from my estimation. And while it's still, yeah, there's, I'm gonna have to read through this a couple of times, but another nice thing that Bruno's done is that he's made a video that walks through this as well. So if you want a more verbal deep dive into the code and kind of between the line explanation, watch that video at least after or even before you read the post. Then I think it starts to hit home a little bit. And the takeaway I have is that I've written some internal functions or packages where I did have to like modify somebody else's function to make some of these side effects more transparent. But that's, like I said, that's overhead for me. Maybe Chronicler is a first step for me to see how I can simply reference all the stuff from an existing function and just put a little sugar on top, so to speak. I haven't tried it yet, so I can't say for sure if it's going to work for me. But, you know, if you want to learn something new in your R development, learning about monads is definitely going to keep you entertained one way or another. <laughs> yet seeing those for loops that he uses to set the stage, uh, he's using for loops to do grouping and aggregation brought me back to a dark place in my early R journey before I knew about the tidyverse. Oh boy. And I know, I know Bruno is a big tidyverse fan, so he won't mind me saying that, but he, he sets the stage there to show kind of the use case for replacing um, that. And, and I found it hilarious when he talked about his first job writing R code saying, 
I remember while working my first job that my boss required that I don't use any functions nor packages, but instead write all the loops explicitly because she wanted to understand what was going on. And of course, he completely ignored this request and just did as he pleased. <laughs> We've all had that's, experiences that's like that down the road, yes. I think. <laughs> for sure, for sure. I'm still questioning somewhat whether or not I know what a monad is. I keep reading it and want to say nomad, but Me I'm too. going with nomad. So the whole blog post is basically a disguised introduction to monads. So that Bruno concludes by saying, well, now that we're ready to learn what monads are, uh, you don't have to because it's everything that you just read. And his definition of a monad is a function factory, which we have a link to in the show notes. This is actually the name of a chapter in advanced R. This is something Hadley Wickham came up with um, as a term for a function that builds other functions. Um, and a monad is a function factory to create functions that return a special wrapped value. And this wrapped value is also call, called a monadic value. Bottom line and all jokes aside, I think that monads have a lot of utility. I think the use case Bruno uses of quickly adding a timer to any function that you have is a phenomenal example that helped me actually start to understand this tricky concept. Um, so functions that build other functions, we sure love our metaprogramming on our weekly highlights <laughs> lately. Um, this podcast is slowly turning into the movie Inception. Uh, so we'll see if I slowly turn into Leo DiCaprio, but I, I doubt it. Well, uh, yeah, don't hold your breath, my friend. Uh, <laughs> but yes, I completely relate to that. I completely relate. Um, and like I said, it's going to take me a couple, probably some practice of it, to be honest. And then uh, but I do see the opportunity for it. I think the key when you explain these higher level, uh, maybe that's the wrong term, maybe these very specific lower level uh, concepts in CS, you always need something to be the hook of like, why on earth would I invest time to do this? So I think like you said, the timing example and frankly, the logging example that Chronicler demonstrates are things that us in the community can very much relate to, no matter if you're doing data analysis, building applications or a combination of the two. So that's one thing that I try to be better at when I explain difficult technical concepts is being able to relate to, you know, the, the specific users or the user groups that are going to be leveraging those techniques or trying to learn more about it. So absolutely, yep. a good example goes a long way. Sure does. Sure does. And what else goes a long way? Well, this issue itself has way more content than what we just mentioned here. How's that for segue, folks? Um, but we'll put a, a teaser for a couple of the things that we both um, wanted to read about ourselves as, as this issue came out. One of those, from my standpoint, is Albert Rapp, who has been on this Highlights uh, feature quite a bit already. He has a post on extracting plots and links from Twitter posts from the 30-day chart challenge underway right now. And it's a huge combination of API calls with Twitter API, um, extracting metadata from that, sending it to a custom output into his Obsidian note-taking system. Like there, that checks a bunch of the boxes that I'd like to do in automation. So I'm going to have to sit down with that a lot more and, and read through it. That sounds right up your alley. The one that I liked was by Roll Horgerverse titled WTF is Kubernetes and why should I care as an R user? <laughs> I love that title. <laughs> To me, I don't know about you, Eric, but Kubernetes is a confusing technology to begin with, simply based on the fact that it's acronymed by K8S, the, the number eight. I mean, who thought, oh yeah, let's refer to it with a combination of letters and numbers. People will totally know what we're talking about. But 
Joel does a great job about telling you what you need to know when you are the data scientist building a product that's going to get deployed with Kubernetes, whether it be a plumber API or a shiny app. And he talks about ways that you can empathize with the engineer who's going to be deploying that to your org's Kubernetes service um, by adding logging with the logger package or, or writing good unit tests to check the port your API or your app is hosted on and things like that. So definitely worth the read if you find yourself in that position. Yep, I've been, I had a little experience in Kubernetes. I can't say it was the most pleasant experience in the world, but yeah, I'll be uh, reading that one with great interest as well. Um, but you know what is a pleasant experience? It's looking at our weekly itself. So definitely check out our latest issue and of course the back catalog as well. And you'll find everything at rweekly.org links to the podcast itself. We're actually in the works of making it easier to find the podcast for each issue. Um, but yes, uh, please uh, get in touch with us. Um, send a pull request to our GitHub repo. If you have a blog post or a reference to a new package, anything that you think would benefit the community, our curators are always ready and willing to bring all that into our future issues. And of course, the listeners have spoken, Mike, they can't get enough of what you're up to. So what can they do to find you online? You can check me out on Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. No DMs, uh, no angry DMs about things I said about non-R programming languages, but everything else is fine. Yeah, we can send that to a different group that will respond accordingly. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I am at the RCast and I am, yeah, always uh, occasionally doing some live streams and this podcast and yeah, so um, always keep the good feedback coming. Um, We're always looking to make the show as better as best we can, but we certainly appreciate all your support. So that'll do it for episode 74. Um, And we will see you next time when we have another brand new issue of our weekly to talk about.